0: This is Writing Grief, a podcast for writers who want to transform loss into art. We are your hosts, Rachel Thompson and Melly Walker. We are writing our own grief stories, some of which are published, and others we've worked on for years. We believe we don't need to write grief alone, and finding other grief writers is magic.
1: Grief Writers to another episode of the Writing Grief Podcast. In this conversation, we begin and end really with the question of self-pity and its place in memoir writing or writing that's meant to be read. We dig into topics in our own memoirs in progress, and as a result, we'd like to issue some content warnings for this episode because we deal with pregnancy, child loss, childhood trauma, mental illness, and lightly with suicide. A single F-bomb is dropped toward the end, so cover those sensitive ears around you or put in your headphones, and we suggest listening on your own terms with safety and care. When I listen back on this episode, I feel a lot of love for our past selves as we were both in the throes of self-pity. We had mild illness and injury, kind of putting us out of play for a bit, but we really pulled it off. Our energies change over the course of the episode. So you might feel a little lull at the beginning, but I promise it really picks up by the end. Melly, when you look back, what do you think about this conversation?
0: Yeah, on the one hand, it was a little bit hard to listen to. I feel self-critical. Part of me thinks I was being contrary around the topic or even avoidant at best. I can hear myself avoiding the main topic because of discomfort with the possibility of being perceived as having self-pity or victimizing myself or being consumed by narcissism, all of which makes sense for my history that I'd be nervous about that. But another part of me thinks, oh, this is just a conversation about control, the things we can and cannot control and how certainty is an illusion and how to write about those difficult things with curiosity in one phase, such as drafting, and yes, maybe control, but more in the phase of revision and other considerations before publication. When I think about my own writing lately, the fact that I've been struggling to write anything new. I know that trying to have control in an early draft, try to wrangle the story in that generative phase of writing just never works. When I'm curious and self-compassionate, I write new things easier with more flow and with more
1: joy. How's your writing going, Rachel? Well one thing listening to this conversation, I had big ideas and promises that I was going to go ahead and write a new scene or the difficult scene that I would talk about where I'm stuck in a new genre, which I haven't done, but re-listening, I'm also really inspired. I'm re-inspired to try it. I've reshelved that particular part for a while as I work on some other projects. And I mentioned that too, just as I think it's part of a healthy writing practice too, to reshelve things if they are kind of challenging, but that doesn't mean you have to stop writing entirely, that there are other things you can turn to. And the method that you introduce in the episode Mally, and that's part of the assignment, spoiler, coming up, feels like the most possible way for me to reenter into the difficult scene.
0: Yes, you're still a writer
1: when you're not writing.
0: <laughs> this is our conversation where we wonder about self-pity. Let's get into it.
1: For this episode, we are talking about the question of self-pity as inspired by the repetition of that phrase in Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking. And in particular, it's the moments where she's talking about life changes in an instant. The first time she writes something about her husband's death, it is a reflection on how life changes in an instant. And then the question of self-pity is a line that comes out almost immediately for her. And I think I know for myself that is something that comes up for me.
0: I want to say that I have tried to read this book a couple of times. It was published a couple of years before my dad died. And then, like, it's 2005, I think. And so I've tried, anyways, I've tried to read it a couple of times and I haven't finished it. I don't know if I'm like scared of it or something, but it's on my bookshelf. So maybe I'll read it after this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we'll get into this because I think it's very much on topic that. I mean, it's a difficult book in some ways, but she's very Joan Didion about it. It's very reportage and sort of almost embedding herself with grief to show us what grief is like from the front lines kind of thing, but in that very stalwart reporter kind of style. The quote at the beginning is, life changes fast, life changes in the instant. You sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends. The question of self-pity. So I guess I wanted to start with... What does self-pity mean to us? What does self-pity mean to you? I should mention, too, we're both recording this in states of injury and illness, (laughs) mild illness. I mean, I have a cold, or I'm getting over a cold. And is. I hope it's okay. I mentioned that you've injured your ankle. And so we were both kind of in that state of self-pity that you get into when you're feeling sick, Inconvenience, sick and injured. So that is one form of self-pity. But then when it comes to grief, and I guess also that's one form of grief too, I expected to be well and you expected to be able to move around yesterday. Self-pity. Yeah, I
0: injured my ankle. I had plans for my day and those plans did not come about because I was injured. And it occurs to me as you're saying that maybe that is Part of grief is, you know, the future self that you thought for yourself doesn't happen. And I mean, that's what Didian is saying is it life changes in an instant. You know, you thought you'd be having dinner one way and then you're not. And in yeah. terms of what self-pity means, I'm not sure if you were throwing that to me yet or if you wanted to define and clarify
1: more. I can go first because I've written a few notes on, I think... The self pity is that voice of why me, why now of all times, like exactly because you were expecting something. It's a feeling of discomfort, but I think it also, in one of those paradoxical ways, is also a feeling of comfort or can become a feeling of comfort, especially if you've had a lot of disappointment and that sort of something maybe that started for you early on, maybe is those expectations not being met. I think self pity is about giving up control and responsibility for your life. Yeah. And I know when I'm feeling self-pity, it's often like the world is against me. It's like a real moment of disconnection where I think there's only I and I am suffering.
0: Yeah, I think the expectations ruined is a big part of it. This is not what I envisioned for myself. And I think, yeah, self-pity does kind of imply a kind of like laying down and saying, go on without me, kind of a deal. I don't know. I feel like it's important for me to say I live with chronic pain, not just twisting my ankle. I have lived with depression for 14, 15 years at this point in terms of, you know, unofficial doctor intervention and naming of it. So I'm nervous about pitying myself because it doesn't help with... The feelings of the lack of vitality. But at the same time, there is also a kind of narcissism in saying it's not about me. I'm fine. I don't need to feel self compassion. I don't deserve to feel self compassion, or I've spent enough time grieving already. Or, you know, there's a lot of grief that goes along with being depressed and having physiological symptoms of trauma.
1: Yeah, I hear you. And I think that's probably also why I start with these kind of temporary, you know, mild, more inconvenience type of injury, because a big part of me does really rage at the idea that we're not allowed to pity ourselves (laughs) sometimes, too. Like, sometimes we don't have control and we don't have responsibility.
0: The word pity is, I think, I guess I have to acknowledge that I'm uncomfortable with it because it's like the difference between sympathy and empathy. There's something about a sense of power or lack of agency or something like to feel sorry for someone is to sort of, there's kind of like a hierarchy assumed Mm -hmm. that you're sort of better than them or that you have, you're better off than them. And so I guess I'm acknowledging that the word pity is, I don't know, it's given me a little like itchy feeling and I wonder why am I uncomfortable? And then am I just doing a word thing where I'm going, well, what about self-compassion when really I'm just like uncomfortable discussing the topic because I'm so afraid of victimizing myself or saying, you know, I don't deserve this or any of that because, you know, I was sort of raised to keep going, which did help me when I needed to survive things. But later it turned out to not be such a great... Coping skill because it just accumulates and there's like a backlog of undealt with grief, really.
1: I want to interject because I just want to lose those two ideas. And I think this is maybe what we can talk about is the binary then self pity and resilience are those two the opposite ends of a spectrum? And then also, I think it's so important what you said is like not acknowledging things and not being able to kind of let grief and sadness and loss kind of move through the body. I mean, that's the thing that self-pity maybe does. It like lays you up in bed mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. forces you to take pause and kind of remove yourself from life and not keep on in a way. I also really value that about myself, resilience, that I was able to kind of get up from hard experiences and survive them. Mm-hmm. And that has given me more strength and resilience to draw from and go, okay, I've survived worse when I'm you know, faced with adversity. You know, I still lay down and say, woe is me when I'm sick. But I also think there is something about sort of healing and taking that time. One of the things that just occurred to me are these lines from Gerard Manley Hopkins, a Victorian poet that I used to have in a notebook and I only just recalled it. It wasn't in my notes for the show, but the lines go, my own heart, let me have more pity on. Let me live to my sad self hereafter kind, charitable. I think there's something about... I guess that access to self-compassion maybe can travel through self-pity?
0: Yeah, because self-pity has been used against me. Why are you feeling sorry for yourself? Or, yeah. you know, in sort of it's an abusive Stigmatized. A, yeah, like in an abusive way. You know, don't sit around feeling sorry for yourself or never allow yourself to be the victim. And in a lot of sort of cultural messaging about resilience and being a survivor and thriving and like this idea that, there's like a binary, like before and then after, after is the oh i'm I've managed to make meaning out of it, and therefore now I'm all better or I'm a happy survivor as someone who's experienced early childhood trauma, again, I guess I'm just like word obsessed, I get a little I get a little on high alert about being a survivor, which is like maybe a different conversation but it's maybe just part of the silencing because if you've survived it then you don't really need to talk about it unless you're giving a motivational speech or something
1: I guess one thing about self-pity is it feels kind of disobedient too it's no you're supposed to it's again in that kind of too much realm of oh no you know this person's feeling sorry for themselves again they're like your think of the cultural archetypes yeah Mm self-pity and for me My memoir is a lot about being stuck. The working title is still Transverse Arrest, which is about the literal stuckness of my baby being born. And it was an awful, really pitiful place. I say pitiful deliberately there. And I feel self-pity like silence when I think about not being allowed to be a victim of that particular event. But I also feel very proud of surviving that period too. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm stuck there, that I recuse myself from my choices and responsibilities. I think there's a form of self pity that maybe then starts going, it bleeds into everything, every decision and every responsibility of your life you cannot do. And even that maybe gets into more clinical problems of of trauma and post traumatic stress where you can't act because you are arrested by that moment and self pity. Is still not even the right word for that then because it's more of a traumatic response versus Yeah, I was gonna say it's it's the stuck feeling definitely, yeah.
0: It's uh what we know about trauma and like how it sort of feels like you're back there. You're back in the danger spot, your body at least is telling you that you are.
1: And I think I'm also kind of exploring my self-pity too. I think you could even say that's a theme, is like feeling stuck and powerless and giving up control and responsibility are part of what i'm writing about and you know when it comes to writing craft so the fact that i'm writing a memoir that does have a lot of self pity explored in it i guess is not really you know the writing establishment however we're defining that doesn't really accept that self pity is something that should be part of writing memoir i was you know in researching for this episode, I found an article. It was like two deadly sins of memoir writing. You should really write a book by Regina Brooks and Brenda Lane Richardson. And they quote them, they say, invite folks to a pity party and you will be a lonely host. If you want to avoid sounding sorry for yourself, consider whether you have resolved most of the issues you're writing about. If you have not, you may want to concentrate on writing strictly for the sake of healing with plans to undertake a more commercial endeavor later. I'll just leave it there. But and actually the second deadly sin was vengeance. And so I think we should do an episode on vengeance too yeah. because that's come up in my writing as well.
0: <laughs> well, yes, working backwards, vengeance being this second deadly sin. I think there is a difference in our stories, if it's okay to say, and I will bring it back to craft, but the fact that you are writing a story about something that happened to you and isn't your fault, but because of the complicated identity of being a mother in this culture, is there like a sense that you did do something that you weren't supposed to, like that you could have stopped it. Whereas in my case, like with my trauma, I was a child. And so I get to say, oh, well, I was just an innocent child, which, you know, has taken me years to say, (laughs) by the way, but like that. You know, sort of self pity is about something that happened to you, but is also there's a sense like you could have stopped it. And so the pause is about like figuring out how to live with things like guilt. The other thing is invite folks to a pity party. It, it sort of sounds like one of those how to be a good housewife instructionals. You know, make a jello mold and make sure you have cocktail glasses and I like the metaphor because you, you are inviting someone in to your world when you write memoirs so I understand that and I definitely agree with what they're saying you know writing for healing and you know we've talked about that but then you know I'm looking at the text from that quote in front of me and I'm seeing the word resolved and avoid and triumphed so again I totally agree that things being processed and like having a sense of understanding meaning because you've gone through it or time or you know all that stuff but at the same time there's still this idea that yeah in craft it is looked down upon that you would say this really hurt me isn't there a way in a genuine way to say wow this really took me out
1: you know to live my sad self, hereafter kind. <laughs> One of the things I think both of us, and I remember, I think you've already been mentioned this, that I was telling you that, you know, there could be more compassion for the speaker in your writing. And I think it's the same for me too, is like accessing that compassion, because it really is easy to internalize when you're bang on about, there's just a lot of judgment about choices around childbirth and delivery to Just no matter what happens, people, you know, if you tell someone your birth plan or your birth or how your children were born, people are going to make very specific judgments about your choices. And so then if things go terribly wrong, then there's that other layer of, and look at what happened because of the choices you made. And so I've definitely internalized some of those. And then so for me, part of writing is when I'm a character in a story... I can access more compassion for her and feel for her in a way that, I mean, maybe you're right about the language and that self-pity is just the wrong term for that. It's really a self-compassion and not speaking from under the pillows. (laughs) You know, there is a resilience to how you're able to then tell the story. Do you kind of feel like just being able to write a story is an act of resilience anyway, that people who are fully self-pitying aren't writing memoir?
0: Yeah, I remember you saying that I need to do a revision step of self-compassion. And I can understand it when I look at other people's stories. Like sometimes in early drafts, there'll be someone describing something very difficult with a lot of grief around it. And then they'll kind of put a throwaway line in there. Oh, well, you know, it doesn't really bother me now. Or, you know, I've triumphed over it. Or that was then, this is now. I mean, The whole point of these stories is that they leave an imprint and they change you. And so accepting that is like, yeah, maybe self pity is a step. And again, not to like healing from grief is not linear. And that's what's very disorienting about grief, you know?
1: Yeah. And I guess I'm wondering if in the time that we're in (laughs) and, you know, more people experiencing grief because maybe they hadn't before they lost everything, you know, their normal lives in this pandemic. Maybe that expectation can start sort of slipping away that it has to be, that your memoir has to be tidy, that your memoir has to resolve in a certain way. I definitely read pieces that we talked about that are not processed and feel really raw, and I think there is a place for more insight and i mean maybe that's just my bias too but i also think where's that middle ground maybe away from the trend or the impetus that seems to often more come from like editors and publishers to be like well no there has to be some kind of triumph or resolution like you said from you're mentioning that quote that goes on, I put, (laughs) I can post it on the show notes too and link to that article, although I don't really agree with it. But yeah, that you have to triumph over difficult circumstances. Yeah. I think there's a lot of shame around self-pity. So, but anyway, I have, here's another reference. Mm -hmm. So it's Alicia Abbott. She's the author of Fairyland, A Memoir of My Father, And this is from an excellent book called Writing Hard Stories by Melanie Brooks, which I recommend in the book. She interviews a lot of memoirists who've written their grief stories, um, like we're doing, and talks about how and why they did that. I love that book because it tells me about what writers think and what their
0: experience is. Yeah, to ground a topic like this that has some shame around it in
1: some words and thoughts from other writers. Alicia Abbott, sorry, I think I maybe said her name wrong before. Alicia Abbott says, as a memoirist, I feel like I don't want to be sentimental. I don't want to be maudlin. I don't want to be self-pitying. So making it artful sometimes meant making it non-emotional. But then she goes on and says, but there were other times when my writing failed because it was not emotional enough. I brought this quote in because to me, it does illustrate What happens if we overcorrect around self-pity that we can fail on the emotional level of really conveying how it felt and going there in a way that is raw and less processed, I guess. And again,
0: (laughs) I'm so picky about words. The word emotional has become synonymous with expressions of grief. Emotional doesn't usually mean you got emotional as in like, you got so excited, you started jumping up and down because you were so happy about that news. Or emotional is like, almost like a loss of control. Whereas emotion, if you take a definition of something being emotional, as in there are sensations happening in your body, in your felt sense, because that is what emotions are, then you would still be able to describe that sense. Like I felt a growing Confidence in myself. You know, there's ways to describe something emotionally without feeling sorry for yourself. I love this quote because there is something missing from art if there isn't perspective or a sense of control, even if you want to say a craft perspective. But then, yeah, the overcorrection is then you're intellectualizing it. Still, it's impossible to have a perspective without having filtered it through your emotional body is the other thing. Otherwise, I mean, I've done this. We're just walking around like heads floating with a body dangling below us. And at the same time, as I'm taking exception to all that wording, I also am like, yeah, no, sentimental. Like there is a tone, like there's a way in which someone is kind of circling the drain or something. Like it doesn't feel like it has momentum or movement. And maybe that's the distinction. Like, we want to see someone move through, around, over, not in get over, but you know, like, we want to see someone move through something. We want to see the moments of stagnation and the pause to know we're not alone, I guess. Grief doesn't always sit in one spot.
1: I I don't think grief sits in one spot. It comes out in funny ways. I have a friend who laughs a lot when she's incredibly sad. She'll have like, uncontrollable fits of laughter yeah I relate to that
0: or something is so
1: true that I laugh yeah it's inappropriate sometimes but (laughs) (laughs) I love it you had asked the question what's the difference between honoring one's story and trauma and Mm -hmm. wallowing in the humiliation of not being seen Mm -hmm. and I guess I want to put to you where is the line and maybe that's what you're talking about here is the movement so where's the line between feeling your emotions and living your truth and self-pity being stuck in self-pity and self-absorption.
0: Oh, that's interesting I said that. I think difficult experiences can disconnect us from ourselves and make us feel disconnected from other people. And I'm sure many people have the sense of like, somebody's died or something tragic has happened and you go to the grocery store and everyone's just walking around, everything's fine. And you think, how could this be? You know, why is everyone going on this? things are terrible. And I would say something like, there is the event, and then there's all the stuff around the event. There's the moment where the bad thing happens, or the moments of the bad thing happening. And then there's all the effects of it. And that, to me, is like the kind of memoir I like to read, like to see someone's behavior, like they're acting out, or they're having trouble at work or you know their marriage suffers or they keep injuring their feet because they're not <laughs> grounded because they refuse to admit that they've been affected by this thing and wanting to be seen as like essential to belonging and so I don't know if it's oversimplifying to say that memoir is like showing the sort of part of the repair but then the act of writing a memoir is saying. I want to be seen, or I'm willing to be seen, or I'm willing to make myself into a narrator, or a character to be seen. And I don't know if that's the same for fiction writers too. Is that the same for poets? Maybe it is. Maybe that is just artistic expression. But owning your story is important, and yet it doesn't define you. That's a confusing little circle I've got myself in.
1: Yeah, I think in that circle too, I mean, I've got some ideas for maybe moving through the circle. (laughs) But one thing that I think about when it comes to writing from a place of self pity is at least the way I know of writing is maybe I come to it because I have some self pity. And pity can be really hard to let go of because for me, it does feel kind of comfortable and safe because I spent a lot of time in that kind of isolation and the way that I know of writing certainly not just first draft writing but multiple draft writing getting perspectives thinking about it embodiment you Mm -hmm. know taking perspectives of people who you disagree with within the writing to you disagree with their actions and behaviors and then having to write those out for me is always not like it doesn't end in self-pity then it kind of becomes self-compassion I think and then it also just becomes more humane in general
0: yeah I feel like I can get next to or see the perspective of a writer who is saying this is what happened to me and it was awful someone who is like trying to deny the impact maybe isn't writing a very good story like maybe that is the point is to show that it has affected you
1: yeah, those stories that, you know, feel like a hero's journey, they feel almost formulaic then. I don't relate to and usually throw those aside. Yeah, it's like, when are you going to get over it? Yeah, I, I'm
0: not interested in those.
1: Yeah, But I guess, I mean, if you're listening so far to us, yeah. then you know that we want more, yeah. I guess, authenticity, the buzzword and truth in our writing and a truer reflection of what it's like on an individual level to experience grief i have another quote so instead of self-pity then this is me quoting then self curiosity instead of a string of excuses the memoirist does her best to set aside defensiveness long before entering the past and examining it anew that's from Deborah Gwartney. She's the author of Live Through This, A Mother's Memoir of Runaway Daughters and Reclaimed Love. Curiosity is a great word. Yeah. Yes. Instead of self-pity, this, self-curiosity. I really like that. And I think that curiosity does kind of lead me. It's again, that question of, I wonder how I feel about this as part of What I do to write, I don't know what I feel about something until I've written about it and examined it from a few different angles. But then I noticed as I was reading that more closely, that she was also saying set aside defensiveness before entering the past and examining it anew. I'm feeling like maybe the consensus we're coming to, not that we have to agree on everything in this podcast, but is it's okay to also come to it when you haven't been able to set aside the past. And that's sort of the beginning of the journey of writing The memoirs, at least it is for me in the first draft stage.
0: You need to be able to have expressed the stuff that might never be seen by anyone else. And I like the word defensiveness because it kind of puts everything on an even playing field. It kind of is a way of being like non-attached for a minute to say, okay, let's look at everybody in this story, including myself. And let's not assume that they're out to get me, including myself. And let's examine like, what is the perspective of the person that was part of this story? And that, you know, at one point I felt rage towards them. And now I'm feeling this other thing. That is a more realistic impression of how we relate to people and relate to ourselves. That when we are defending, we're just like, we're defending against, we're saying what it isn't instead of what it is.
1: Yeah, and to me, that seems like it's all curiosity then, again, that's driving that. It's like just being open to seeing things from a new perspective through the writing itself. What have we done to kind of set aside, I guess, self-pity, really, in our writing to access more of that self-curiosity?
0: Well, I have to kind of do the thing. I have to imagine myself at four or I have to imagine myself at 24 and think, okay, let's put this four-year-old in a little lineup against other four-year-olds. It's kind of like what parents describe once they have had kids. They see what happened to them in a different perspective. If I'm trying to describe moments, I need to be able to look at myself like another character.
1: I would say it's the same even for the adult me. I mean, this was in my 30s, the stillbirth, and when I'm writing about that, most difficult part. I really feel pity for the person I'm writing about as if it's not me. Yeah. And like the sympathy and understanding that it wasn't her fault, that it's terrible yeah. how lonely and broken she feels. Even just now I'm like emotional but in a way that's really not self-pity. It's oh, I feel bad for that other person. Yeah. And it feels more like self-love and self-compassion. And there are drafts of other parts where, you know, my memoir where I feel like someone did me wrong and I might I definitely have a whole section that I'm working on still, you know, many drafts where I'm trying to persuade the reader that I deserve pity. And I know that's the problem with that section. And those are the early drafts and they take a lot of reflection and other techniques like journaling on the side. I definitely think you know, more therapy is probably in my future around the trauma of that event where I feel really hard done by in a self-pitying kind of way. But
0: sometimes things are just
1: terrible. Yeah, even exactly. Certainly, I don't want to be in the place where I'm litigating to the reader and writing it. This is a bit of a coma story as Mm -hmm. Betsy Warland So we'll Mm -hmm. continuously reference that book, especially because we're reading it actively right now. But there's that idea of just Getting kind of set in a way of this is how I always tell the story and I'm trying to convince the reader, the listener of something by telling that part of it. And so I want to get beyond that. And maybe the problem isn't necessarily self-pity or maybe the problem is actually that I don't have the confidence Mm -hmm. that I deserve that compassion Mm -hmm. and care. I was even going to say, too, that the act of writing about it is a form of permission to feel what you felt i appreciate that you're giving me a mini insight about this section because it's also because there are other people involved my mother uh-huh. and so there's like a dominant narrative to that too that i feel like i'm fighting against more where uh-huh there's a family story of what happened to me yes regardless of whether people were present or not Yes, but in this case people were present so then you know it's a much more firm <laughs> story of what happened
0: yeah whereas if something the more kind of internal grief like maybe chronic illness or you know maybe even like an old death so to speak like a death that happened before a lot of your social group was formed and so the people that are around you don't really know and so you kind of get to have control over how you tell it but then yeah there is always this Thing about how you get into this automatic mode where you're telling it the same way. And I mean, maybe that's where, yeah, like you said, journaling. I mean, there's going to be so much that nobody sees. And it maybe, again, that is part of the process. No one's watching, right? No one's going to read it. I mean, I could stand to do that. I could stand to say, wow, I really got fucked over. Wow. I will even feel it when people talk about their fathers and they'll say, oh, my father's so annoying or my, you know, I mean, There are annoying dads, I'm sure. But like, also sometimes I'm like, wow, must be nice to have a dad that calls you and cares. You know, there's a jealousy that happens. And maybe that is part of the self-pity too, is to say, yeah, I am envious. And that's like a normal response. I'm not living there. That's not my address, but as part of it. And maybe this is one of those things where, you know, I use this prompt sometimes sometimes I'm supposed to feel this, but I actually feel this. I'm supposed to feel empowered by this experience, but I actually feel like pissed off or, you know, the family narrative is this, but sometimes I just want it to be that I'm not okay. I mean, there's a kind of a fantasy about being able to relax into pain. I know I'm not the only one who's fantasized about being so sick that I have to submit to it, even though that's like my worst fear. There are some times where I'm like, oh, I just wish I could just rest and I wouldn't have to keep going, which is, you know, not a good sign in terms of suicidal ideation. But I know I'm not alone in that.
1: Yeah, I wonder if it's also then people will really see that Mm -hmm. I'm hurting, right? Yes. It's undeniable. Yes.
0: It's undeniable, oh, she's on bed rest or, you know, everyone will be able to see that this is real for me and that I'm not over it and that I'm not okay. And yeah, so I think journaling for sure, yeah, drafts, a list of all the reasons I'm not supposed to tell this story. I mean, even playing out the responses of people that know me and are part of that story and are going to take exception with my version, I know it. I know those mm-hmm. people exist and I've let them take up a lot of space in my mind for a long time. And actually I have allowed them to stop me from writing and exploring the truth, let alone, you know, what the critical side of me says, well, you know, I'm lying or I'm trying to say one definitive truth, which I'm not. I'm just I'm in this exploration place where I'm just want to know what happened. I want to make sense of it. You know, when I say that. I'm very hard on myself. So there's a critical part of me that's observing all of this and going, oh, well, you better make sure you don't come off as, you know, feeling sorry for yourself. But at the same time, I say that and I just felt so compassionate for myself that if someone else was saying, I just want to explore what this meant. Of course, that's why I read memoir. I'm like, yeah, tell me what this meant. I'm confused too. What could this mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, listening to you, I feel angry on behalf of my friend to go, How dare someone say you can't write this because somehow it's feeling sorry for yourself? It's just so silencing. Yeah. I do feel like connecting with other people, like having really good early draft readers who have Mm -hmm. compassion for you and get you and your writing. And I totally recognize it's hard to find those readers too. Mm -hmm. All the layers about grief and how people shy away from that and trauma. And then also, the discomfort with self-pity might be things that'll be hard for people to read, but, you know, to give you any advice other than the more generic stuff we were talking about, well, you need to process your feelings more or put away, I mean, I guess putting away your defensiveness is, we've agreed, (laughs) it's a good, I don't know why I need, I need us to agree on everything. uh, No,
0: um, well, we want to connect. I mean, that's, we've talked about this before. Once you find Someone who understands grief, or someone who's writing about grief, you just relax. There's a shared understanding. like even on Instagram the other day I commented, whatever, I had this DM with this writer, and she said, "Oh, I see you're a grief writer, too." And I had only mm-hmm. recently put that in my little Instagram bio, and I felt weird about it when I did. And then I was like, "Oh, actually, no, this is great, because it's like a shorthand. Yeah. She's writing grief, too. And she's not going to be one of these people that says, hey, you're breaking the social contract. Like, I do think there's a lot of that, where Especially as white women, hey, you're not supposed to say that things are wrong. You're not supposed to call attention to the fact that this whole situation is a little messed up. And that's the, please comply with the story. Please follow along. Please stuff your feelings because that's what I'm doing. And how dare you? Once you know that someone has done that, kind of considering where they've been willing to break the rules. I feel more comfortable with them because I know they're not going to say why are you bothering with this? Can't you just write a good
1: short story or, you know, I really like that idea that you have in terms of assignment. Can you repeat that the writing, you know, assignment I guess that you were kind of giving me and we can give that to our listeners too?
0: Yeah, so allowing yourself to write like many versions of I'm supposed to feel this, but I actually feel this. I'm supposed to feel like I triumphed over adversity. Instead, I feel pissed that more people don't talk about depression. I'm supposed to feel, I don't know if it's okay for me to say this to you, Rachel, but like I'm supposed to feel grateful for the children I have and not mention the children I don't have. And instead I feel silenced. I mean, there's so yep. many versions of that. And that's the stuff that I feel like you need to get out. It's an expression and it's in there. And I think it probably blocks a lot of curiosity, this kind of rightful rage about being silenced. And if you can work that out sort of privately in a safe way, I feel like we'll be able to look at our stories again, look at our narrator with more self-compassion and start to investigate like the coma story, like you say, or even something like writing out the story of this happened and then writing a kind of sensational version, you know, melodrama, you know, if this was a melodrama, you know, I think the untitled dad project goes through genre at one point. And I found that very useful. It allows a sense of play about heavy Mm. things and there's mm-hmm. an idea that there needs to be this like sacred space, this like buffer of, oh, we're talking about suicide now. And then oh, like, how do you transition from suicide to like, where do you want to eat for lunch? Those things are part of life. Like mm-hmm. they don't exist in separate tidy boxes. And so maybe being able to play around with genre, play around with different versions and let yourself take the time to do that because I know I would be like I don't have time for that I just need to get like this chapter sorted out you know like I don't have time for Mm -hmm. that but that is so essential it's like how fiction writers talk about knowing a character's background but you might never put all of that in the book but because you know that character so well you are able to write them with such humanity that readers connect to them and so maybe we need to do that for ourselves. I mean, I don't know if it would even make sense to talk about yourself in the third person. (laughs) These, (laughs) These are private things. These are private things that no one needs to see or that hopefully you have writer friends that maybe you could share the experience of doing that and being able to like take a lighter, again, I'm not being dismissive, but like a lighter feeling around it. Yeah. Yes.
1: Like I'm not, well, right now I feel like I'm writing it like it's a legal document that i'm trying to win in court so yeah i mean i love the idea of genre writing and i'm going to definitely link to the excellent podcast the untitled dad project which is Mm -hmm. probably a big inspiration actually for part of why we started this podcast too for me Mm -hmm. and i'm seeing like a horror film actually so maybe i'll try writing that scene as like a horror movie and use a lot of the tropes in it
0: and I can already hear your voice changing around that too. It's allowing a different perspective, which is what we keep saying you need to have. And so your perspective doesn't stay fixed, hopefully, in life. Yeah. So why should your perspective of your story stay the same? Maybe that's what's so scary about it is that if a book is published and it reveals your life and your grief and all the things you feel about it, it's like a it sort of stands still. It doesn't take into account 10 years after the book is published and how you might feel then. There's a sort of bravery in saying, yep, this is what I am now. This is what this is now. And releasing that the same way you would release a poem because you're done tinkering with it.
1: Mm-hmm. So that writing is abandoned, not necessarily completed. Yeah, it's a commitment to committing to the way you were. That feels like another episode, too, because, yeah. you know, <laughs> 10 years out from the book I published, I do feel like, oh, that was another person who wrote mm-hmm. those poems. Yeah, that's All interesting
0: right. that you're able to have that perspective, too. Thanks, Rachel. A good conversation. Thank you. Our prompt for you is to write with curiosity about the story you tell yourself about yourself, as is my way. I was circling around a few ways of entering this free write. You may choose one or do them all in any order you like. You may start with trying to fill a page of I'm supposed to feel this, but instead I feel this as a way to fully express your private and valid feelings about your grief story. Next, you can look at this list of supposed to's and choose a genre in which to write a loose summary of your grief story. Rachel was going to try writing her grief story as a horror. You may also try a melodrama, like a soap opera, or a reality television show, maybe a fairy tale, a science fiction, Or maybe write yourself as a private detective in a mystery, a gumshoe investigating a family secret. And of course, there are many other genres that might pop for you and allow you to find
1: another perspective and maybe even have fun writing about hard things. Thank you for listening to Writing Grief. Keep writing, keep connecting, and stay curious.
0: Thank you for opening your writing heart to the Writing Grief podcast created and produced by us, Rachel Thompson and Melly Walker. Visit writinggrief.com for
1: detailed show notes on each episode. We try to link to every book or reference we make in this episode, even if it's just made in passing. If there's something we missed or you want to know more about, you can contact us on our website, writinggrief.com or at podcast at Sound editing by Adam Linder of Bespoken Podcasting. Our podcast art was created by the talented Monica Calderon. Find her at monicadesigns.ca. We support Indigenous
0: sovereignty worldwide, and we acknowledge the lands and the first peoples of those lands on which we record our podcast.
1: Our writing practice takes place and benefits from the unceded territories of the Kenyan Kahaka and the Anishinaabeg peoples in the place colonially known as Montreal, Quebec, and the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, Swasin, and Musqueam Nations in so-called Greater Vancouver, and of the lands of the El Tirbin Bedouin in South Sinai, Egypt.
0: If you're a non-Indigenous listener, we encourage you to learn about the land and the Indigenous peoples whose territories you write from. Where were the trees you read in as a child? What is the history of the lands that helped you grow into the writer you are today? Who are the people who care for that land now and in the past? This may take some research on sites like native-land.ca. Thanks
1: again for listening to Writing Grief.